Hello, I'm Stephanie Ruff. And I'm Aviva Nabeski. We're the hosts of the Dressage Today podcast, where you can find us talking about anything and everything dressage related. Our conversations span the world of dressage from leading riders to local level dressage heroes. We're talking training advice, showing tips, and sharing stories to inspire your own dressage journey. So tune in, then tack up. Welcome everyone to the Dressage Today podcast. We are very excited to be here taking over the hosting roles. I'm Stephanie Ruff, content manager for Dressage Today and Practical Horseman. I took over this position in January of this year, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to combine my lifelong love of horses, dressage, and riding into this career. I'm joined in this adventure by Aviva Nabeski, who agreed to co-host with me despite not having any podcast experience. Aviva, thanks for going on this journey with me. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. It's such a pleasure to be here, and it truly has been an exciting journey so far. (laughs) Yes, it has. But And we wanted to start this episode off by briefly introducing ourselves to you, the listeners. So I'm going to start by asking you, Aviva, how did you get into horses and into dressage? Well, you know, I'm a little bit of an oddball in the dressage world. Um, I didn't start riding until I was 32, and I will admit that I am about to be 63. So it's it's been an interesting 30-year journey so far. Um, I decided to start riding because when I married my husband, his hobbies were computers and airplanes, and people thought he was really interesting, and we'd go to parties and people wanted to talk to him. And my hobbies were classical music, reading, and cooking, and I was dull. So I decided I needed to do something that was a little bit more interesting that would make people want to talk to me, and there was a barn, big lesson program down the street from me, and I went and started riding. And it was, I didn't know anything about riding, but it was an event barn. So we did stadium jumping and cross country and dressage. And I had an unfortunate accident over a cross country jump and got scared and decided that I would focus myself purely on dressage. And 31 years later, (laughs) here I am. All right. So, you know, coming to horses as an adult, then obviously, well, you mentioned some of the things you you focused on prior to your horses. But um, what did you do professionally or for a living before you got into them? I was a social worker. Um, I worked mostly in physical rehab, did a lot with spinal cord injury and head injury, both of which um, are common in the horse world. Although, interestingly, um, none of the patients that I worked with during the time that I was working as a social worker were horse-related injuries. Um, I find that having spent my professional life in social work, learning how to help people cope with various changes to their lives and to the way that they adjust to things has made me a much better instructor and judge. And it has helped me, although I'm still not really good at that thing they call patience, (laughs) but it has helped a little bit. (laughs) That's always can be a work in progress. Uh, Absolutely. All right. So you are not only a rider and competitor, but you are also a judge. So then how did you get involved in judging? Well, I was always last. I would go and compete and I was always last and I had a really nice horse and I didn't understand why I was always last. 
So I finally decided that I would try going through the L program to see if I could understand what it was all about. Um, and I was encouraged by a friend who was a small R and I was lucky enough to find a program that was only about a two hour drive for me. And I got into the first part of it and went up and started the program and did the first session and spent the weekend and drove home and said, I have no business doing this. I don't know anything. I was the only person in my group who wasn't already an instructor who hadn't ridden at the FEI level and who had never judged before. But I stuck it out and I had wonderful, wonderful instructors with the L program and I stuck with it and I passed and I passed with distinction and here I am. <laughs> Now, did, did, did you start after doing the L program? Did you, did you start not finishing last anymore? I did. It's amazing. The L program has been one of the best things that I could have done for myself in so many regards. But just as a rider, I started to understand what was involved in putting together a test. And that just because you have a nice horse doesn't mean that you win mm -hmm. the class. That nice gates don't guarantee you a seven or an eight. But other things like, you know, accuracy and corners and bend and quality of throughness and all of those things really do matter. And sitting at sea is one of the most valuable things that any rider can do for herself before she goes into the show ring, just to get an idea of what the judge is actually seeing. Not even necessarily what the judge is looking for, but what the judge is seeing. That is excellent advice. Perhaps I will one of these days go through the L program. It is so worth it, you should. <laughs> Maybe I will. <laughs> so you have a lovely farm in Maryland. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it and, you know, what's, what's your typical day look like? Um, well, my typical day starts at right now with daylight savings time. It starts <laughs> in the dark um, and I get up and I go down to my little tiny six stall barn and get all of the horses fed and the cats fed and turn horses out and muck stalls and, you know, all that good stuff. And, um, Sorry, my cat is playing as I'm talking and it's a little distracting, but I do all of that stuff down at the barn and then head home and have some coffee. And then I get started with my day and my day, depending on what day of the week it is, is either heading out to teach someplace else or getting ready to welcome trailers here to my place or heading out to go judge somewhere or getting my own trailer ready so that I can head out and take lessons on my own horses. So you're, you're pretty much a one-woman show then, huh? I'm very fortunate that my husband helps a lot. I couldn't do it without him. Um, but yeah, pretty much it's me. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of people who can relate to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now we know a little bit about you. And um, I guess now it's your turn to ask me a few questions. Well, same questions back to you. How did you get started riding? I, my story is a little more probably predictable. I started riding when I was about eight. My best friend that lived across the street, she was a couple of years older than me and she took riding lessons and she got me involved. And uh, so I rode for a couple of years, you know, once a week at a, at a small barn. And um, the, 
the gal that was our instructor at the time, she was a teenager and eventually she graduated from high school and then went on to college. So there were no more opportunities for me to take lessons. Um, I wanted to continue, but my mother said that I needed to wait a year to find out if it was something I really wanted to do. Well, I knew the I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> and it was the longest year of my life. Oh yeah, but she Our, um, she was good to her word, and a year later, you know, we found another barn that was outside of town, but we found another barn where I could take some lessons. And that is where I met and started to work with the person who became my main mentor, um, Colonel Alfred Kitts and his wife, Gretchen Kitts. I initially rode with his wife, Mrs. Kitts, and, um, and then as well as him a little bit, but at the time I wasn't quite at that level. Um, and eventually I went and took lessons with one of his long-term protégés and, you know, so then I went off to college and I would still take lessons. I actually, though, didn't own my first horse until I was an adult, until after I graduated from college and was able to afford to buy one myself. So, you know, and over the years, I've done a little bit of everything. As a kid, I, of course, did the hunters and the equitation and um, didn't like hunters much. Uh, I evented like you, I evented and, and, um, uh, loved that. And I was fortunate not to get into any kind of accident, like you mentioned, but I just realized after a while that I was not a brave cross country rider. <laughs> you know, once those jumps got above three foot, I was like, no, nope, not doing it. No, <laughs> they, don't, they don't fall down. <laughs> exactly. Well, in those days, they certainly didn't fall they, down. They know? did not fall down. Yep. So I was like, yeah, well, maybe, maybe not anymore. And I rode jumper. I did jumpers for a while because the horse I had was a jumper. And I loved that, actually. I, I, I love doing the jumpers. Um, but I just kind of then, you know, was bringing a young horse along. And so we weren't jumping yet because she was young. So I was focusing on the basics and focusing on dressage and, and my flat work and stuff. And while my initial intent was intent was to uh event her i just got more and more into the dressage and the um and just really loved that direction so that i just kind of fell into just going that direction for the last 20ish years or whatever um you know so so that's probably a little bit more typical story as far as starting as a kid. And, well, you know. as as a dressage rider, though, you're a little bit unusual in that you seem to have mostly focused on Arabians. How did that happen? Well, yeah, <laughs> it, it sort of has gone that way. It didn't start out that way, but it has kind of gone that way. And because I've ridden lots of different types of horses over the years. But... My first professional job job, my first real job in, in the professional world was in the Arabian industry. And so I, I didn't have any experience with Arabians at the time, but I started to learn about them and I started being exposed to them. And I bought, I was in the, um, the field of Arabian horse racing, which is a very, very small niche market. Most people don't even know it exists, but these are, you know, athletic horses and they were some of them were quite nice so i picked i bought a project horse and off the track i had worked with lots of off the track thoroughbreds but then i got this little arabian off the track and that was my first arab and i just was really taken by their intelligence mm -hmm. and their personality 
Um, and they're just they're just there was something about them that that just really attracted me. Um, and then I met more Arabian people and I got to know other Arabian horses. So you just kind of I just kind of went down that road and I was just became enamored with them. And then I'm not a very big person. You know, obviously our listeners mm-hmm. can't see me, but I'm five, four if I stand up tall and, <laughs> you know, and, and what height I do have is in my upper body, not my legs, you know, so I don't need a big horse. So Arabians, right. their size and their stature suited me physically quite well. And it just, the more I was around them, the more I liked them. And I just have, they, they are, they require you to be a a better horse person because they care so darn much. And and I had a trainer who used to say that she loved Arabians because they had such great senses of humor. They, they, some of them do. (laughs) Some of them, I might question their sense of humor at times, but I just, it just is something that I kind of fell into. And I mean, I love all horses. A good horse is a good horse is a good horse, regardless of speed, color or anything. But I've just kind of, fallen into the Arabians and and have really enjoyed them. It's a real tribute because one of the things that dressage is all about is that it makes any horse a better horse. It makes any discipline go better. And the fact that Arabians are not your, quote, traditional dressage mount, and yet so many of them are so successful and they are beautiful and they do tend to stay sound, which is not something that you can say for all breeds. Yeah, no, I, I can actually speak to that. I've known that's been one of the, they are, they are, they are sound horses. Part of it is they're so flippin' smart that if, you know, something happens, they, they stop and go, um, excuse me, I, they, you can't push them through something if they don't want to be pushed through it. So they take care of themselves. <laughs> Which is wonderful. It is. I wish more of them did. <laughs> I, know, I know. Not all horses do that. So so that's a little bit about you and and horses. But tell me how you got into I know one of the one of the ways that I met you was through your writing. Tell me about when you started writing and what you prefer to write about and h- how you do that. I, I'm always fascinated by people who have that skill set. Well, that is the one thing that I was apparently born with the ability to do. There are a lot of things I've had to work very hard at, riding included. I've you not and me natural, both. Yeah, <laughs> not a natural rider. I've had to work very hard. But writing was something that even from a very young age, I had this, you know, I could do. And I enjoyed doing it. As a little kid, I would write stories and all that sort of stuff. But it was not something I ever considered as a career or as a profession. I actually, my degrees are in animal science and in genetics and stuff like that. Um, and and I like telling this story. So I spent many years not writing. But when I was, this is this is very relatable to to the to the career I'm in now because I remember very distinctly one night reading my Practical Horseman magazine, and I was kind of at an interim like I knew. I had spent several years at my current job. I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere in that company. And, you know, like if I wanted to stay in that position, fine, but I didn't want to. So I've had been spending a lot of time thinking about what am I going to do next? And I'm, re- I'm reading this Practical Horseman magazine and this kind of, I just thought to myself, I'm like, you know, I could do this. I could write articles for magazines. This is, you know, I know about this stuff and I'm decent at writing. I can figure out how to do this. 
So this is this is you know basically kind of pre-internet, you know, certainly pre-Google days. This mm-hmm. is when you had to still like I went to the I went to the store and bought a book. Yes. Remember libraries? Exactly. Um, On how to write magazine articles. And so I bought this book and I followed the steps and I started trying to freelance. Um, And my first published piece was a little profile in a food allergy newsletter about about a um, an incident I had with pine nuts and I was paid $10 and that was very exciting and that started me down the path and then I've been very fortunate to encounter some wonderful people along the way to the point where I've written hundreds of magazine articles and have been involved in um, I have two published children's books and you know, I've done a lot of different things with the writing career. It, it It's not where I started. You know, it's not where I'm it's not where I started. It's not where I ever thought I'd end up being. But I'm perfectly happy being here. Well, uh, and how wonderful to be able to combine your your talent with your passion. Exactly. And that's yeah, I'm so I'm thrilled with that. So it's um it's a win win as far as I'm concerned. Well, I'm thrilled to be here with you and love getting to know you better and looking forward to following you on this journey that we have started on today. (laughs) Yes, and I as well. And so for our listeners, that gives you a little insight into our backgrounds. And I'm sure as we uh, do additional podcasts, you'll learn more about us uh, as we go forward. Since Aviva is a graduate of the L program with distinction, we thought it would be great to have a segment where she can give tips about showing from a judge's perspective. You can get some insider info. If you have a specific question, feel free to email me at sruff, that's R-U-F as in Frank, F as in Frank, at aimmedia.com, and that's A-I-M-M edia.com or reach out on social media. In our first segment today, we thought it would be helpful to address proper rider and horse attire for a dressage schooling show. Aviva, what do you like to see when a rider enters the arena? Stephanie, I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I think it's so important. Um, People get themselves wrapped around the axle about what do I do to go to a schooling show? And sometimes it's that last little thing like braiding a horse that keeps them from going. So for me as a judge sitting at sea, what I want to see is somebody who's neat and tidy, whose horse is neat, whose tack is clean. There are some things that I prefer to see. I personally think that braiding a horse is a lovely tribute to not only the person sitting at sea, but also as a way of telling us all how you love your horse and want to show your horse to its best advantage. But I also know that braiding, especially if you're that first ride of the morning, is just that one more thing that's just too much. So a nicely brushed out mane, a short mane, 
um, if that's appropriate for your breed standards. If you're riding um, an Arabian or a Frisian that has a really long flowing mane, make sure that it's nicely brushed out and looks clean. Um, we have so much fun tack now in dressage, and I happen to adore bling. Um, <laughs> so those wonderful blingy brow bands, bring them on. I love them. It doesn't bother me, not even a little. Um, some of the bling, though, I have to tell you, I question people's decisions. Um, if you are a beginner rider and you still haven't really mastered the art of posting well, or you're just moving into second level and you don't really sit your horse's trot all that well, sometimes having those blingy helmets is not the best choice. Mm. So just something to think about. Um, on the other hand, they're really pretty and I love them. <laughs> um, I will say that from my perspective, I never judge a horse and rider based on their turnout. Um, however, I always think that it's the rider's responsibility to let me know that they love their horse. And to me, a horse that's clean, um, I know having a gray is really difficult. And I know getting out <laughs> those last minute manure stains and pea stains. Oh my goodness. I've, I've never owned a gray and there's a reason for that. Yep. Um, and I've never once marked a rider down for having a dirty gray, but if you can get your gray clean, that's a really nice way to tell us that you think your horse is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I sometimes giggle when people come down my center line and I can see that they're wearing a bespoke dressage coat and brand new white breeches and custom boots and a $6,000 Hermes saddle and an expensive bridle. And they're on any kind of horse. It doesn't matter what kind of horse and the horse is dirty. And to me, the message that you're telling me is that your presentation is more important than presenting your horse. So something to think about. Again, I would never judge differently based on a dirty horse or a clean horse, but it really does make an impression. Um, if you have an option between cleaning your horse and cleaning yourself, I would clean my horse first because we want to show the respect for the horse because without the horse, there is no dressage. Having said all of that, None of the turnout really matters. It depends on the school, schooling show that you're going to. It depends on the managers. Um, many schooling shows say that you're supposed to treat them like a licensed competition. And then, yes, you want polished boots and white britches. You want to be wearing a coat. You want to have on a stock tie, um, unless it's brutally hot. And then make sure that you're wearing a shirt that has a collar and short sleeves. Mm -hmm but there are so many schooling shows now that are so informal and just being neat and tidy goes a long way to showing that you take this sport very seriously. I will say that I think one of the classiest outfits for a schooling show is a rider in white breeches with a black shirt. It is just so elegant. So if you can stand the white breeches, get yourself a pretty black shirt and come on down my center line anytime. <laughs> That's great. Those are really good tips. And I think I'm really excited for this part of the podcast because I think you can you can provide us with some really good insight that um, I know I look forward to hearing and I'm sure everyone else does as well. Well, thank you. I, I look forward to sharing my own opinions about this. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Good deal. 
And when we return from this brief commercial, we will have an interview with international judge and clinician Janet Foy. Smart packs are a simple, foolproof way to make sure your horse always gets the right supplements. All you have to do is choose the supplements that your horse needs, and Smart Pack will pack them in convenient, customized daily doses that make feeding time fast and easy. And Smart Packs aren't just easier for you, they're better for your horse, too, because they come in pre measured doses, are clearly labeled, and sealed for freshness. There's never any doubt that your horse is getting the absolute best. Smart Packs are not only better for your horse, but also better for the environment. Unlike most buckets, Smart Packs are made from 100% recycled PET plastics and can be recycled again. Visit SmartPack.com or call 1-800-461-8898 to learn more about how Smart Pack can help you take great care of your horse today. We are thrilled to have Janet Foy joining us today. Janet is an FEI five-star dressage judge, young horse judge, and a USEFS dressage judge. Janet has judged all the major shows in the United States and Canada, including the North American Young Rider Championships and the 2019 Pan American Games. She judged the Paris World Cup Finals in 2018 and the 2019 European Championships. Janet has been honored to judge many of the top CDIW and CDI five-star competitions in the world, including the famous Aachen five-star. Janet has also been to Australia and South America, judging in Brazil, and also judging the Central American Games in Bogota and the Central American Caribbean Games in Puerto Rico. Janet is a former member of the AHSA and USEF Board of Directors as well as a former board member for USDF. She currently serves on the Dressage Sport Horse Committee and the International Disciplines Council and is a member of the USDF L faculty. Janet is the author of two books, Dressage for the Not-So-Perfect Horse and Dressage Q&A with Janet Foy. When not traveling the world, as a judge, she splits her time between Colorado Springs, Colorado and Wellington, Florida. Janet, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, we know you've been involved with horses and dressage for so many years, but how did it all get started for you? Well, it started when I was five years old, and my German grandfather, who was an animal lover, took my sister and I to riding lessons every Saturday morning, and then we would go over to this restaurant that had great big hamburgers and have lunch. So it was Western, it was a group lesson, wasn't much, but it got us really um, convinced we had to have horses. So we did that for a couple of years, and I think, um, oh, I was probably 12 when we convinced my parents to buy us a horse. And so my sister and I had been sort of naughty, and we had been going into the horse pasture that surrounded our house, it was about a 1,200 acre pasture. And we'd been with my girlfriends, we called it nabbing horses. We'd take our jump ropes and we'd put them around the horse's neck, jump on and ride them around the pasture. It was totally the most unsafe thing ever. We had no idea, even if the horses were rideable, but we never got hurt. 
and there was this one black horse that we really loved. So we found out he was for sale, and he probably was mostly quarter horse. His name was Snakes. <clears throat> so we bought Snakes for $500, and um, we had to share the horse. That was the first problem. <laughs> and believe it or not, after we had gone into the pasture for months with our jump ropes, now that we owned him, we couldn't catch him. So we had to carry buckets of grain, and it was a huge pasture, so sometimes it took 30, 40 minutes of walking up and down the hills and looking for the, the herd of horses. So that's how I got started. So my grandfather totally um, instilled the love of horses in us. And, um, in 1969, he took my sister and I to a Europe for three months, and um, obviously we went to the Spanish riding school mm -hmm. and saw the performances, and he was Austrian, so um, we were able to go in and pat the stallions. It was really an amazing experience. Is that what sort of sparked your interest in dressage then? No, because living in Colorado, we didn't have dressage. I didn't even know what it meant. I guess that's not true. I, we did pony club. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, the pony club version of dressage. And when you're a kid, dressage is not really fun. It's right. more fun to do cross country and jumping and yep. play the pony club games and things like that. So I actually became a rodeo queen. I rode Western, um, we had some quarter horses, we had some Appaloosas, and I did, I got bored with Western Pleasure, so I did Western riding and rain. So, yeah, and then I got married, and we moved to England, and I wanted to ride, so I joined the Oxford Riding Club, and they happened to be going to a barn um, that was a dressage barn with Molly Sibright, and so I signed up for the group lessons, and then another girlfriend and I decided we needed more instruction, so we started going back for semi-privates. But it was pretty funny because the, we would have instruction, it was again a group lesson, you know, ride, free tap, or shoulder in, ride, shoulder in. And afterwards, I'd look at my friend and say, do you know what the hell she's talking about? No, nobody knows what she's talking about. So we bought a book on dressage, um, Lockie Richards, Begin the Right Way. And we went, had tea, read the book, we're like, Hey, that's what shoulder in supposed to be. So, yeah, and after that, because I just got really like enthralled with this sport, it's very similar in a lot of ways to reining and western riding. Yeah. And um, so I enrolled in the British Horse Society program and took the exams and passed. So that's how I got into dressage. Then we moved back to Colorado and I wanted a horse, so I bought a off-the-track thoroughbred that was half-starved, standing in a field, and by the time I got her fit, she was crazy. She was really, like, wild, and, um, but I guess I was the best rider in the barn because people were asking me to ride their horses and give them lessons. I was really terrible. I knew nothing, but like I said, I was probably better than anybody there, so that's sort of how my career started. I have a degree in advertising and journalism, and I actually was a public relations director for the Broadmoor Hotel, which is a five-star oh, yeah. hotel. And I also did public relations for a film production company that did motivational speaking films. But I just decided to quit my real job and play horsey, as my mother called it, and kept wondering when I was going to stop this playing horsey thing. You see how long that Yeah, was. and you're still doing I'm it. Still playing <laughs> yeah. um, so then, when did the whole judging part 
evolve? That's How that evolved? That's another interesting story because I never really wanted to be a judge. Um, <laughs> that just didn't really cross my mind. I loved riding. I loved training. I loved showing and competing. Um, and I never even thought about the other side of it. And we had a group in Colorado that wanted to do a small art judges program, and they needed one more person. And I was the only other person in the whole area that had the riding scores to do it. Mm -hmm. So they were all my friends, and they taught me into it, and then I passed. <laughs> then I'm like, oh my God, now I'm a judge, and I don't know anything. So then I had to work really hard at learning something, <laughs> being a better judge. So that's how the judging okay. started. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you have anyone that inspired you early on, or did you have any mentors along your I journey? Had, I had a lot of them. I suppose my, my first one was Bodo Hanum, and Bodo was working for Temple Farms. And another trainer at the farm, Julie Sadowski, was bringing him in once a month for clinics. And so I asked if I could sign up, and she sort of, you know, I'm like, okay. So she finally let me sign up. And I'm riding my thoroughbred mare around, wide awake, who, of course, is nowhere on fit. And he watches for a while, and he said, you, you'll have to change the wording. You call yourself an instructor. And I, I grew up in a household of German men. So I'm like, I said, well, I made it, but I paid my money, and you better start teaching. So after that, we were really good friends. <laughs> So he was my first mentor. And later, um, I met Hilda Gurney and did a lot of work with her, went out there and worked with her. When I ended up being qualified and going to the first in Silco, which is the first head-to-head -head national championship that they ever had, in the middle of the country, I was invited with two horses. I was there looking around, looking at Robert Dover, Kay Meredith, Lyndon Gray, Dennis Callan, all these people. Oh my gosh, Jan Abeling was there, Carol Bell. I was so super impressed. But I had a chance to meet all of them and talk to them. And that, I think, was probably the biggest um, jump in my career because both the horses I qualified were five years old. Really, really top horses. and. So I met all these wonderful people that would come to Colorado to do clinics. So I started having once a month clinics at my barn with top, top people. Robert came for four years, um, which was wonderful. And it made a huge difference. I invited all the other instructors in the area to come. And we had a great time and became very a really cohesive group. So yeah, I mean, I had a lot of mentors. Like it's Robert was one, of course. Dennis Callen was was awesome. Um, Yo Henneman was really inspiring. Um, I rode with Jan Bemelmans twice, just which isn't a lot, but still I still can remember those lessons. I rode with Kira twice, and I still remember those. So yeah, I was really really lucky to have a bunch of great people really um, yeah. teach me good things. Yeah. And, yeah, Uva and Betsy Steiner came for years. So, yeah, really lucky. Well, and this might kind of just segue. Um, what are some of your memorable moments, first as a writer and then as a judge? Well, 
As a writer, of course, going to Insilco was, you can't beat that. <laughs> when I was writing the regional championships, where there were three of them, East Coast, West Coast, and middle of the mm -hmm. country. So when I would go to California, I was really a small fish in this amazing atmosphere. Right. So when I could go to California and win, or be reserve champion, that was really exciting. That was really wonderful. Um, of course, getting my bronze, silver, gold medals, all my Grand Prix horses I trained, my students um, that I helped get their gold medals. Really, I love teaching. Mm -hmm. So just having my students be successful yeah. is a huge, huge piece of that. And as far as judging, um, oh my gosh, well, how could it be cooler than to judge Aachen? Uh, the European Championships was unbelievable. Um, I also enjoyed the Pan Am Games. And our shows here in the US, I mean, Devon is always memorable and very fun. And the Friday Night Freestyles in Wellington, you know, you can't compare. But I've been really lucky as far as being able to judge all over the world. So I've seen Russia twice. Uh, I've been all through Central America, South America, all through Europe. Uh, I've seen the world, Australia a couple yeah. of times. So it's been a wonderful way to travel, see the world, meet people, and also do cool things. <laughs> yeah. What's what's your what's been your favorite spot? Do you have a favorite? You know, I don't. I have favorite spots for different reasons. I would say. Aachen has the best shopping. Um, the show in Salzburg or the show in Frankfurt are both around Christmas. Um, oh, so the, yeah, the Christmas markets yeah. in Europe, oh my gosh, those are amazing. Um, I judge Fritzens Austria, which is the Swarovski show. And there is nothing like sitting in the judge's booth being surrounded by the Alps in Innsbruck. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely, um, I don't know, like being judging in God's place, like God's arena. It's to me the most beautiful arena yeah. I've ever been at, for sure. So yeah, there's different really special things about all the different places. Sure. Um, so then, then, and maybe travel is one of your favorite parts of the sport, uh, but what, what are your favorite parts and what do you find difficult or challenging? Well, the challenging is the traveling, is getting okay. there and getting home. Right. Um, you know, we all have, uh, there's probably a fascinating book in there about judges talking about their <laughs> travel experiences and horrible hotel experiences and food poisoning and you know the whole uh, I bet the yeah. whole gamut. Um, so that's one of the difficulties for sure. Um, the highlights I suppose are my friends. Uh, I have colleagues all over the world that I may only see twice a year mm -hmm. but as soon as I see them it's like I saw them yesterday. Right. So it's a really special, special group of people. It's a family. Yeah, yeah. Um, so kind of changing gears a little bit, is there anything new um, with the USDF? Anything going on? Well, of course, everything's been difficult with COVID. Right. Um, I, I know <coughs> my committee, all the committees I'm on, 
we've all we've had to have more and more and more meetings that we normally don't have because we have to keep changing things mm. because of the circumstances. And I don't know with this new horse virus how hopefully that will die down and they right. got it quickly enough because that could be another devastating, devastating problem. Um, the biggest thing I would say with USDF is two years ago, I'm pretty sure it was two years ago, USEF turned over the education and the examining of licensed officials. They still do the licensing. So we've had a very um, productive two years with our committees and the staff at USDF has been absolutely stellar. But we've had to redesign a lot of the programs, train people in USDF, and I think a couple of them didn't realize what they were getting into. But we've run amazingly successful programs, judges forums. Uh, we did a great young horse uh, judges forum in, in Wellington last month. So that's been a huge transition for, for both of us, both federations. Um, do, you think, do you think COVID and the entire pandemic, do you think that's changed USDF or temporarily, or do you think it's kind of changed no, things going forward? I don't think it's going to change anything except that they now have in place strict protocols if something happens again, and maybe we won't have to shut the sport down for so long. Right. Um, but you, when you're talking about the health of people or the health of horses, you have to always, you know, caution on the side of caution <laughs> yeah and not be crazy it, it really affected a lot of people's livelihoods yeah. and I think living in Florida we're in sort of a different it's almost like there's no pandemic I know I, I agree it's, it's like whatever <laughs> and when the Europeans come here to judge they are first of all they have to have a special letter from our Federation so that they can even get on the plane because mm -hmm. they're not even supposed to leave their country. They're supposed to be in quarantine. I'm supposed to judge a show in Germany at the end of April. Right now, I could not even go to Germany. Germany is totally shut down. Right. Um, not just because of the horse virus, but also but, still because of right. COVID. So I don't know. It'll be an interesting challenge, I think, for everybody to see is the World Cup going to happen? Are the CBIs going to go? How is Tokyo going to run? They told us to buy our tickets again for Tokyo. We've done that. They've sent us a playbook on all the protocols and how things are going to work. So right now, we're all going forward, which I hope happens for the athletes, that they all have a chance to go and compete. Yeah. It will be very different for the officials because usually we enjoy restaurants and shopping and touristing, but it will be very strict hotel venue back to the hotel with COVID testing in between. Wow. Um, I'm fully vaccinated. Some of our other judges are not. The other countries in Europe are very, very far behind the U.S. Mm -hmm. in vaccinations. So yeah, it's, I don't know, a crystal ball and everybody's like living from day to day. Right, still, yeah, still. <laughs> still. Yeah. No, but I'm sure after the disappointment of it being the the Olympics, especially being canceled last year, to this year, 
still kind of being in that position as to whether or not yes or no has got to be really tough and really frustrating. I I do believe the COVID issues have been handled and dealt with. So my my concern mainly is now with the first virus. Right. And where that's going to lead, and we don't know that. Right. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully nowhere. <laughs> so one of the questions I like to ask everybody whenever I do an interview or something is, what do you feel, what do you think makes a good horse person? Well, first of all, that they care for the animal, that they're animal lovers. I think there are a lot of people who ride and train that don't, and it's not about loving the horse, it's about respecting the horse and treating it humanely. They're I think things that we all see, not just in dressage, but other sports, mm-hmm. that you just can't believe that people are doing that to animals. So I have a very you know, high level of how much I respect someone by how they treat their horses. Um, and I think they have to have a skill that they, they understand the horse's potential, but also its limitations that there are too many horses that are pushed beyond their limitations and it's very sad to see. And a lot of times it's not just that the riders are riding poorly with a double bridle and the horse's mouth's open nose on the chest and there's no way they could do a third or fourth level test, but that the trainer is telling the rider that that's okay. Now I've had students myself that have said, I'm buying this pre-St. George horse and I'm going to go show pre-St. George, blah, blah, blah. If you don't like it, I'm going to get another trainer. Like, fine. Another trainer. So, yeah, I mean, the horse person has to really spend the time and the hours. It's not even the money. It's the hours and the time and the elbow grease to really take care of their horse and their tack and their where the horse lives and all those things. Very good. Well, I do want to thank you again for taking time today. I appreciate it. I enjoyed watching you this afternoon, the whole day. And like I said, I, I, I want to come back now so I can watch everybody <laughs> again. But thank you so much. I You're really welcome. do appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Well, I hope it turns out to be a good program for you. Many thanks again to Janet Foy for speaking with us. Thanks also to Copper Hill Farm in Vero Beach, Florida, for allowing us to film Janet's clinic there. You can look for videos from that clinic coming soon on DT On Demand. We'd also like to thank SmartPack, our sponsor for this episode. Be sure to visit them at smartpackequine.com. Thanks for listening to the Dressage Today podcast. If you've missed any episodes or to subscribe, go to Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Learn more and read in-depth training articles at dressagetoday.com, or you can visit our subscription video site, ondemand.dressagetoday.com. Be sure to give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Happy riding, and we'll see you at X. The Dressage Today podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of Equine Network, LLC.